Lord, we're so thankful that you hear the words of our lips. We thank you that you inhabit our praises. And then, Lord, we are so grateful that you see all of the worship and the praise that we have toward you that is deep down inside of us that we can never put into words this side of heaven. We love you. We appreciate you, Lord. Thank you for who you are and how good you have been to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up your word to us tonight and help us to understand you and your ways in our lives, the things of you, Lord, in a greater measure as you continue to conform us into the image of your Son. Thank you for the progress, Lord, that you are making in that front. We notice it, Lord, on some level, to some degree, we notice it and we love it. Continue to sanctify us by your truth. Continue to change us into the image of Christ tonight as we study your word under the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 119 this evening, our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then you can hear the Word of God and follow along with your own eyes and get a double impact and a double blessing of the Word of God this evening. We pick things up in verse 73 in this uh, Psalm 119, beautiful psalm. The, uh, the theme of the psalm is the Word of God and, and uh, expressing the psalmist's uh, love for the Word of God. And as we read through the psalm, we realize this man had a very deep um, relationship with God through his Word. And it's fun to go through the psalm and to recognize that the Lord is developing that same kind of uh, depth of relationship with him through the word, the same kind of appreciation where you go through it and you go, I recognize that. God's, I've thought of that. God's doing that in my life too. And it's a tremendous encouragement. And as we've noticed in our uh, somewhat uh, slowed down journey through Psalm 119, we recognize that not only is this psalm a psalm of, of thanksgiving and a psalm expressing the beauty of the Word of God. But the psalmist then gives us reasons why the Word of God uh, meant so much to him. And as we've seen, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The psalm breaks itself up into 22 sections. It is an acrostic where each one of the sections begins with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each verse within that section all begins with the same letter. I mean, really tremendous uh, work of the Spirit in putting this psalm together. And we pick things up in verse 73 where we learn and want to notice that the Word of God provides us with needed perspective during uh, God's chastening in our lives. He said, your hands have made me, verse 73, and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments those who fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. 
Let, I pray, your merciful kindness be my comfort according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate upon your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes that I may not be ashamed. And we notice specifically verse uh, 75 and 76. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so here is the psalmist and he is in the midst of an affliction that has come from the hand of God. God does have a hand. The Bible says that it spans the universe. And sometimes it spans our backsides too because the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. I hope you are afflicted by the Lord and chastened by the Lord. I am regularly being disciplined by the Lord. Uh, Sometimes uh, I think that's why he made a pastor of me. He said, he said, it's just like if you've got an elementary school classroom, you've got the teacher's desk right there, and you see the biggest troublemaker, and you say, I'm going to put that kid right in that desk right there because he can't get into too much trouble. So that's one of the reasons the Lord called me to pastor. But he's always disciplining and always uh, afflicting, and this is known as chastening in our lives, God's discipline in our lives. And, of course, you cannot raise a child physically and emotionally and mentally to any kind of maturity. They can't be prepared for adulthood or or maturity without discipline. And uh, so there's a requirement of disciplining going on in order for someone to be mature physically, emotionally, mentally. But the same thing is uh, spiritually true as well. We cannot reach a spiritual maturity without God disciplining us. And so he does that. Sometimes, you know, when you're disciplining your children, if you have them or you've had them in the past, you say, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And it's just like, okay, I don't mind you spanking me, but I lying and spanking me, that's really hard for me to stomach. And then they have their own children and they realize that it takes love to do that. I mean, the, the highest motivation. When you see a child who's been trained by their parents emotionally and physically and mentally being prepared for adult life, you realize that parent has a tremendous love for that child. It's only that kind of a love that's going to cause you to be consistent in that discipline, going to cause you at the end of a long day at work, you come home, you finally get to plop down, and then that's the time they choose to goof up and do what they know means you're going to have to deal with them and what gets you up to go ahead and deal with them, your love for them and your concern for their character and that they'd be successful in life, not only in the physical realm, but a spiritual realm. And apart from the perspective that God's Word brings concerning His discipline in our life, we'd be tempted to misunderstand it or to misread His discipline. Because He's going to discipline all of us. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Hebrews chapter 12, probably the great chapter on discipline in all of the Bible. 
And so he, because he loves all of us as his children, he is going to discipline us and he's going to chasten us. And without the word of God, we would misunderstand it or we would misread it and think that it was working against us rather than something that's work, uh, working for us. And so the Lord speaks to the fact that this is a part of being his family. And it's one of the evidences that I am a child of God is that he does discipline me. For that reason, I never doubt that I'm a child of God. He's always talking to me about something. I'm not, I'm not in the doghouse all of the time, but he's always telling me, now look at it this way or look at it that way. You know, sometimes the dad does that or mom comes in. And it's, you know, not all discipline is a spanking. Uh, and not all discipline is, you know, getting right there and eye to eye and really sternly, you know, uh, telling somebody something because of some great mistake that they've made. But a lot of it's just that, where you can kind of see uh, the arm go around the shoulder and say, let's think about that a little different way. Let's look at this a little different way. And that's kind of stuff that's going on all of the time. Now, when I disciplined my children as they were growing up, that, of course, was an evidence that I was their father. And I disciplined them for things that uh, they might not have been disciplined for if they were part of another family. Maybe the other family would have a different standard for behavior or a different idea about how children are to conduct themselves or the role of parents in the life of of a child and all. So if they'd been raised in a different home or maybe raised by a different father, things might have been very different. But because I was their father, I raised them according to the standard of our family and not the standards of the world. And so the same thing happens with our father in heaven. He's careful to raise us by the standard of his family and not the standard of the world. It's a wonderful thing. We become a Christian and we are born again into his family. And he considers us his sons and his daughters. And he's going to discipline us. And he's going to train us. And he's going to be stricter with us than the devil is with the world. Or the way that purely natural parents are with their children. Sometimes we think, boy, Lord, I can't get away with anything. And you really can't get away with anything. Is his heavenly father. Sometimes we, we use this little thing while we, we're parenting our children when they're small and they wonder how we knew that. And we tell them, because I have eyes on the back of my head. Really, where are they? And they want to go through your hair and try and find them and all that. No, they're secret eyes. It's just stuff like... And it's only because we know what they're going to do because we're so much smarter than them at that moment. <laughs> we know what they're thinking and all and what they've done and everything. We can spot it. And so we use that on them. But with, our, our, with the Lord, he does have not eyes on the back of his head. He's aware of absolutely everything that's going on in our lives. And, and because, because he's aware of that, because we are a part of his family, um, He's going to discipline us. And it's just an evidence that he cares and that we're not being raised by just anyone, but we're being raised by God and his family. Now, in that great chapter on, on discipline, Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that there's two tendencies that we have, as even as God's children, two responses that we have to God's discipline. And that is we tend to respond to it in one of two ways. And very, both ways are very extreme from one another. We tend to respond to discipline either by being discouraged by it 
or by despising it. You've got lots of different kinds of kids, don't, don't you? Some children that you have and uh, you discipline them and they despise it. I mean, their back goes ramrod straight. And I mean, uh, humbling that child is a, a great, great challenge for the parent to do and to break their spirit into the, the things of the Lord. And so some kiddos despise it. And then some children, you look at them cross-eyed, they just fall in a heap and they think that you hate them and you're never going to love them again and all. Well, it's the same kind of thing even as we're adults. We're just, you know, I'd just like to say, I wish I knew it as a kid. If I was a kid, I wouldn't have been nearly as impressed with adults as, uh, as I was now being one and uh, being fairly invested in adulthood time-wise at this particular point. We're really just big kids. We know a lot. I mean, we have a lot more experience than we had when we were kids, but we're still goofy, and we still have these personality traits, and we still have these tendencies, and we still are in need of a Heavenly Father to keep us moving in the right direction, and He's faithful to do that. But that's the tendency that we have, to despise the discipline or to be discouraged by it. Anytime that happens in our life, it's an indication as a Christian that we are misunderstanding the uh, purposes of God. We're misunderstanding God's discipline. We don't understand uh, the reasons that he does it. Like we think it's, that, he, uh, that it's something to be rebelled against, to be resisted, or he's working against me because of it. Then, then I'm not understanding discipline uh, very well. None of, neither of those things are the intention of discipline. I think that it's very important to realize that related to God's discipline and his role in our lives as a father is that not all discipline is, uh, um, in, uh, is a punishment for wrongdoing. Now, a lot of it is, and I know what that feels like. You know what that feels like. So I've done something wrong. I'm in the doghouse. I recognize that. Okay, Lord, now talk with me about it. It's just, and it's really just like you have a dad. And it's like only he doesn't physically lift you and put you in the corner or put you in a quiet place to have you sit. You have to take that place. And then we take that place and we say, all right, Lord, I messed up here uh, somehow. Sometimes we realize immediately what happened. And then sometimes we don't understand. All I know is that the, the spirit inside of me has been grieved. I did something wrong there. And so, Lord, let's talk this through in prayer and you show me just what happened there. Because I want to be right with you no matter what. I don't want to be up in my room somewhere separated from the rest of the family and from you. And so sometimes uh, there is that thing where he is, it's a chastening for wrongdoing. But discipline also has an angle to it of preparation. And in fact, the word that's used for discipline in, the, in Hebrews chapter 12 has that preparation side of things. The Lord is preparing us to be successful, not just as our earthly mother and father does or is supposed to do anyway, to prepare us to be successful physically, materially, emotionally, mentally in the world, but he's preparing us to be successful and to be spiritually mature, to navigate the world that he knows we're going to need to navigate by the time we become adults. And that requires training. And the Lord is very, very good at training us in this whole work of preparation. I think of Joseph in the Old Testament, probably the great example of that. 
God gives him visions of how he's going to abuse him and, and our sheaves, your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. Joseph said to his brother, to his mother and his father and his brothers, the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to him. In other words, God has got a great plan for Joseph's life. And he spoke those visions and it kind of got him in the doghouse a little bit on it. It was on, uh, they, the, the family didn't take it that well and all. And so it's one thing to get visions from God about what God has planned for our lives, and then it's another thing to be prepared for that. And it takes a season of preparation. And sometimes the greater the things that the Lord has planned for your life, the longer the season of preparation, and sometimes the more strict He is in His discipline as it relates to our our lives, where He'll push us. I think about... In, uh, co- in the level of coaching, and I've mentioned this before, um, when I uh, used to play basketball, I only had one coach that I considered to be an outstanding coach, um, and he was an assistant coach. I oftentimes think it's not like I'm buried in, in, uh, in a life of regret related to it, but I often wonder what it would have been like for him to be the head coach, and that I had been able to be under him for a full two years in order to see where he would have taken us. And uh, there's that element of coaching where someone looks and sees the potential of a given athlete and then pushes that athlete way beyond what that athlete understands that they have as a gift and way beyond what they believe that they could ever do. And God will never, if we ever come to the end of our life, and we look back with regret on the fact that we never became as great an influence for God as we as we want desired to be there at the end of our life, or that we regret that we weren't as faithful as we ought to have been. Any sense of regret in there that will never be a regret that we can ever shift to Him, because we will recognize. Anything that was lacking in that way was lacking on my part. He's always working in order for us to achieve uh, greatness. Joseph's preparation was a period of 13 years of preparation because he was going to become the second most powerful man in the whole world next to Pharaoh in Egypt. So it involved pits and prison and false accusations and, and just a mess that, that he was in the middle of as God was preparing his character. It looked like one thing to him. It looked like one thing to the world. But God knew what he was doing. God is, is sovereign. He, his providence overrules everything. He makes it all to serve him in his purposes for our lives. And then one day, Joseph wakes up. He's got a big, long beard. The Egyptians didn't wear beards. Prisoners wore beards. And he's in prison garb and the whole big thing. He wakes up one day and then and on that day he gets a call from one of the guys saying pharaoh wants to see you front and center right now pharaoh he's got this is the most powerful man in the world they bring him out they shave him up get him all cleaned up and a day he thought was just going to be another crummy day in prison by the time the day is over he is not only standing before pharaoh but he has been promoted to the second most powerful man in the whole kingdom and thus in the whole world and God had spent all of that time preparing his character to be successful for that. You think about that. I mean, we read these, you read the stories about people that win the lottery, you know. 
It's a terrible thing. I'm open to it. Listen, I think I've, I could spiritually handle But, you know, they win these things and they win, what are they, sometimes they're up to like $480 million and all of this. That's a, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble with $480 million or whatever the thing might be. And you see almost all of them as they document them say this is the worst thing that ever happened in their life. Why? Because this thing that happened in society provided them with this unbelievable amount of money, but the society never gave them the character to be able to handle it in a productive way or a safe way. So you're going to be self-destructive that way. But God works in our lives so that when He puts us in the place He's calling us to, we will have the character to be successful in that place. And He never fails to do that. And preparation is a hard season. It's a stretching season in our life as Christians. And sometimes we look at it and say, I haven't been bad. I haven't, you know, done anything wrong. I don't. And yet here you are. You've got me in this circumstance and I'm forced to live like by faith like nobody else I know. I'm, this hardship has come into my life. This heartbreak has come into my life. This thing has happened here. Why in the world would this be going on? And we don't understand that he is preparing our character for what he knows is coming right around the corner so often in our lives. Just one day we wake up and then we realize that's what you were up to all along. And there is something harder than God's seasons of preparation in our life, and they can be very hard. And the something harder is to ultimately be elevated into that place that God wants to elevate us without the character to successfully navigate it or handle it. And again, as I said, God will be faithful never, ever to do that to us. He's always working uh, to uh, chasten us, not only discipline for wrongdoing, but preparing for the great thing that he has planned for our lives. It's wonderful just to think here tonight, isn't it, to realize that God has, a, he has great things ahead for each and every one of us. He works all things together for good, the Bible says to those who love him and are the called according to his purposes. But there's preparation that's required for that, and he's faithful enough to do that. And this reminded uh, the, the psalmist in, that, that God is doing this kind of thing in, in our lives and all. He, what he remembered in the midst of God's chastening and discipline, notice in verse 75, God's judgments are always right. I stand before you. I've walked with the Lord since 1985. Somebody get me a cane, please. Some of you laugh. Some of you go, shut up. You say it in a nice way, but it's in your heart. I've walked with the Lord since 1985, and I have never, there's never been one decision that he's made that has made me doubt when, uh, and ultimately, when I see what in the world he was up to, kind of all along, has made me doubt that, that he knows exactly what he's doing. Sometimes at the moment, only he knows. But there's that recognition. The psalmist had it here. God's judgments are always right. That's a good thing to tell ourselves tonight. God's judgments are always right. This is a right thing that's happening in my life. And then you notice in verse 75, 
The psalmist reminds us that God's discipline in our lives is only an evidence of his faithfulness, his faithfulness to his role as our Heavenly Father. And he's faithful to that. He is our Heavenly Father. That's not just words in the Bible that we say. He understands that to be his role, and he is faithful to that uh, role in our lives. And he's just being the dad that he knows we need him to be in our lives. And so good things to be reminded of here this evening when we find ourselves in the midst of God's discipline or in the midst of his chastening in our life. And then we come to verse 81, and the psalmist said, My soul faints for your salvation, but I, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, When will you comfort me? For I've become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongly. Help me. They almost made an end of me on the earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. And so this section teaches us that the Word of God, it provides hope, it provides comfort, it provides a needed perspective in our life in the midst of persecution. We don't experience the kind of persecution here in the United States yet that Christians experience in much of the rest of the world. The world is a very dangerous world for Christians, and it's becoming more and more dangerous for Christians. So this section of Psalm 119 to large parts of the world, large parts of the body of Christ, when they study through Psalm 119, this might be the most meaningful section of the whole psalm for them. And so the psalmist speaks of what the Word of God means to him while he's in the midst of the persecution from others. And we notice the persecution is very, very severe. We notice the effect that it's having on him. I remember one time I was a new Christian. I was listening to Christian radio, and there was a lady who was talking about um, navigating trials in her life. She was on the radio and had her own radio show and all. And uh, she was making a point, and then she uh, wanted to make an illustration of the point and how you could be faithful to God, even in the middle of great trial and difficulty, and how she had gotten out of her car, had a car problem of some kind, and uh, did something with the windshield wiper, and it broke one of her fingernails. (laughs) okay that's like a regular event in life or whatever i mean this is like deep persecution and trial i thought this is a very very comfortable life this woman is leading this is if this is where you pull out of the grab bag is an illustration of deep trial difficulty But his persecution is really severe. You notice in verse 81, he's worn out. I mean, his soul is in danger of fainting, he says. In verse 82, he's all cried out. I mean, his tears, he's just lifted up to the Lord. Verse 83, his 
he's, he's dried out. He just likens himself to a wineskin that's near a fire. It's, he's being robbed of his physical strength and vitality. And verse 84, he feels like time is running out. His days are numbered that if God doesn't do something, it's just a matter of time before they kill him. And he's not just saying, well, this would, what would be dramatic in this part of the psalm? This is the situation that he's in. And the situation that you can be in tonight, too. And many Christians find themselves in tonight. In verse 87, he tells us that he's surviving by the skin of his teeth. People are actively seeking his death. And so this is a really, really hard uh, persecution that he's in the middle of. But then notice it gets worse. The persecution is an unjust persecution. People can hate me. People can be attempting to do me harm. People can even attempt to kill another person in life because it's kind of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of situation. That's not what's going on here. And and so he's being persecuted uh, even though he's just and he's being persecuted for just doing the right thing, living a godly life. And then he tells us further in verse 85 that the persecutors are proud. They're the wicked. They're the ungodly. And I'll tell you, that's one of the hardest trials that a child of God will go through in life because it's not just hard on the body. When you're being persecuted for doing right and being right, That's hard on the mind. That's harder on the mind than it is ever sometimes upon the body. And then the situation where the persecutors are proud and they're wicked and they're ungodly, and I don't need to tell you that their numbers are increasing today, that's hard on the spirit. And that kind of a trial where what people are doing in persecuting us it hits us physically, it hits us mentally, it hits us in, a, in our spirit. That's a very, very difficult trial to, to be in. For doing good and for being good, it can really fry you. And the temptation is to lose hope in all of it or at the under, other end of the spectrum to just throw off the gloves and say, all right, you want to do this? I know how to fight fire with fire. You ever say that to the Lord? Don't shout out. Just say to the Lord, Lord, could we pretend I'm not a Christian for five minutes? Would you just give me a five-minute window where this would not hurt my testimony or my witness? Because I'd really like to see what I could do to that guy. (laughs) Mr. Big Mouth, Mr. Show-Off, Mr. Proud Guy, who doesn't realize that every Christian that he runs into weren't always Christians all their life and could probably snap his neck in two seconds if they weren't concerned for their Christian witness. Well, of course, we would never think that. (laughs) But if we ever did think it, and there can be that temptation to just say, you know what, I've had it with you. I've had it with this situation, and I'm going to come back at you in the way that I know from a former life to come back at you. I'll tell you, that's a really, really strong temptation. And most of us are not even tried or tempted in that way on the level that many of our Christian brothers are in the world or 
the way that this, the psalmist was in this psalm, but we can feel it, what it must feel like. And you say, where do you go? Where in the whole wide world do you go? So you don't snap, and in 30 seconds we destroy our Christian witness that we've built sometimes over a period of decades. Where can we go to hear the things that we need to hear in that moment when so much is in jeopardy and in danger? And it's the Word of God. And we go to the Word of God, and the Word of God reminds us to expect persecution that it's promised to us as Christians. Jesus said, in the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And then we start to look and say, all right, expectation in persecution is my portion. I should expect that. But then we begin to receive the revelation of God's word for why that kind of thing happens in our life. Why are we being persecuted? And as Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub or Uh, of the devil, how much more will they call those of his household? And we realize we're being persecuted so often simply because the Holy Spirit is on a daily basis conforming us into the image of Christ. And I say it very, very often, but I always mean it when I say it, so that's important. And that is we must never expect the world to to treat Christ in us any differently than it treated Christ 2,000 years ago. And no one in the world is going to remind me of that. Only God's Word is going to remind me that's why I'm receiving this opposition here. You have those situations that occur and you go, what in the world? What are you talking? What do you say? What, what is this all about? And you walk away and you realize that wasn't a physical event that occurred there. The stimuli didn't warrant that kind of a response. What in the world was that whole thing? You realize it's bigger than just the physical realm. It's a spiritual realm. The devil's got all kinds of people that he can use to probe and to poke us and try and provoke us and and find our weaknesses related to these things. So we throw away what's most precious to us. And the Word of God protects that, protects us in that way so that we don't become like the people that, that are persecuting uh, us. And the Word of God is faithful to remind us of those kind of things. But it also reminds us that there's a reward at the end of this life that will make us forget all about the hardship that we suffer for Christ's sake. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. You say, all manner of things, evil against you falsely for my sake. I mean, you just can't load more unfairness in a sentence than Jesus just did there. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. I mean, that's the encapsulation. He said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you notice in verse 86 that the word of God then reminds me that in the midst of this persecution, God will be faithful to all of his promises to us. 
And sometimes when we're being persecuted in that way, we can begin to think that God's plan, His purposes, His provision, His promises are now somehow in play, that they're being jeopardized now. That what the evil and the pride are doing to me, the proudful are doing to me now is somehow going to become big enough that God won't be able to overrule it and work it together for good in my life. And we come back to the Word of God and we realize God has that kind of power and that kind of strength to make sure that that doesn't happen. It reminds us of God's faithfulness. He will always be faithful to His Word, even in the worst persecution. And so these are the things that we need to hear. You think about how thankful the psalmist was for the perspective and the instruction that God's Word brings to us when we find ourselves in seasons of persecution. Nobody else is going to speak those things uh, to us uh, in our lives when we're facing that kind of thing. Only God is going to do that in His Word. And that's the importance sometimes where these kind of things happen in our lives, to just take our Bible, find a quiet place to sit down, and to begin to seek the Lord. What in the world is happening here, Lord? And allow the Word of God to speak to us in the way that only it can. And then I want, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, just want to look at verse 89 here as well, this section. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth, and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. But I consider your testimonies. I have seen the uh, consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And I want us to notice that verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The word of God provides us with a word that is settled in heaven. And that word settled, it means to be stand firm, to be fixed. It doesn't shift and it doesn't change. And that's a good thing to know. Look at the world that we live in. Look how crazy it is, how messed up it is. Look how we're going in the wrong direction on any, any, almost any way you want to look at. And then you look at you, you look at the decisions that are being made in order to address the problems. And you just you look at what, for instance, in our nation that we live in, if you wanted to destroy a nation, if you, if you brought 50 of the greatest minds and put them in a room and said, come up with a plan for how to destroy a country, they could hardly come up with a better plan than we're just stumbling our way into. And then you see the solutions that they try to come up with to fix all of these problems. And they just make things worse. Why? Because the one thing that can never be considered is repentance and turning back to God. And that's the core need. 
So as long as I'm not willing to accept his definitions of right and wrong and turn in that direction, but in fact we're living in defiance of those things and moving further away from them, well, you're going to be the tail and you're not going to be the head, as the Bible says. That's just the way that it works. And so you see the mess. And we realize that the world that we're living in is you're watching it. It's like this grand experiment They're trying anything and everything on not just a financial level, not just a government level, as bad as all of that is, but on a moral level, on a societal level, in terms of everywhere you want to see. And it's just this big experiment that's going on. And they don't have the slightest idea what they're doing. Does anything about the trends that are going on in the world today frighten you? In the, nat- in, in the natural man. I'm surprised every church in the whole world isn't jammed full with people <laughs> that may come, that may come. Some of the things that have happened, I'm surprised that the financial meltdown did not fill the churches of the United States of America. It never happened. There was no increase in church attendance on that. Why? Because people still look and say, we can work our way out of this. We can wise our way out of this. We can think our way out of this. It's not so desperate that we have to turn to God. (laughs) It's not that bad yet. God says, I can make it that bad yet. Or I can just leave you alone and let you make it that bad. But ultimately, it gets there. And it does get there. But it's terrifying. It's terrifying to watch what we've been forced to watch in the last, you know, few years. And we look, where's the place of stability? Is there a place of stability in the world? Is there, world, is there anything that's sure in the world? And the one place that's sure is the Word of God. It's the Word of God, as he says here, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It doesn't change day to day, year by year. There's no revised books. You know, the Bible is the Bible. It's been what it has been for thousands of years. There's no revisions that need to be made. Why is it the Bible revised? Listen, you don't revise perfection. Why don't we update it? Yeah, you don't need to update perfection. You just leave it alone. And so the Word of God, it doesn't change from year to year or week to week. It doesn't even change from generation to generation. It's true in every generation. I like to say that. The Bible is true in every generation. Now, whether you're a young person or an older person in this room, the Bible is true for your generation. The toys of each generation... Those are different. The technology, the world around us in some ways, surface ways, that's different from one generation to the next. But at its core, the world is always going to be exactly what it is. And the Word of God is good for every generation. It was good in 500 A.D., 1,000 A.D., 1,500 A.D., 2,000 A.D., 2013 A.D. It is the only place that is unchanging and sure in the whole wide world, unshakable, immovable. It's settled in heaven. What does it mean for the Word of God to be settled in heaven? It means it's unaffected by the affairs of this world. 
God's word and the truthfulness of his word is 100% unaffected by the affairs of this world. We can put our trust in it. And, it, and he's going to be faithful to it every single time. And the truth that we're building our lives and our eternities upon, the Bible teaches, is not only unaffected by the world, but the truth that we're trusting in is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. My faith and my eternity is based upon the surest, most unshakable thing in the whole wide world, and that is the very word of God. And it's the one thing that we can count on when the world around us begins to shake. You realize in the book of Hebrews chapter 12 spoke about the fact that everything that can be shaken will be shaken in order to reveal what cannot be shaken. In the last days, God is going to shake this world in order to expose what can be shaken, the kingdoms of man, and what cannot be shaken, the kingdom of God, and for the world to be able to look over at the kingdom of God and say, that's stable. That's sure. That doesn't move. There's a king over that kingdom. This kingdom is a mess. I want out of this, and I want into that kingdom. But it means that the world that we live in is going to shake, but the kingdom of God will not shake. And the shaking is required to get the attention of the rest of the world because apparently the reason that we sit here tonight in this room and we are not in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb enjoying pepperoni pizzas and Pepsis is because there's more people to be saved. Who cares about them? I'm saved. Let's get out of here. No, the Lord still cares about them just as much as He cared about you and me before we got saved. And so that shaking goes on. Yet I mention it every once in a while. I'm in hope of revival. And whatever shaking needs to occur in this world for one last flexing of the Lord's strong right arm for great awakening and a great harvest of souls into his kingdom, maybe just one more time before he returns, then whatever has to happen, then let that happen. But we will need the word of God to maintain perspective in the midst of all of that, while it happens forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Well, we'll stop there tonight, and we'll prepare now.